All right, good evening. Shall we open our Bibles tonight to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64. Or sorry, Isaiah chapter 63, I should have said. <laughs> no. Isaiah chapter 63, my apologies. I glanced down and saw chapter 64 and read 64. Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to read verses 1 to 9, and then we'll commit our time to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at what the passage has for us tonight. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with garments, dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to see you. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you again, Lord, for the opportunity to come out apart from the world, to sit under the word of God and to study together and to hear from the the writings of the book of Isaiah. We ask, O oh God, that you'd bless us tonight, that you would help us as we follow along, help us to understand what it is the prophet is seeking to convey and to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying, both to him and to us by means of application. So, Father, I pray tonight that you would speak to our hearts and challenge our lives, that you would confirm us in the word of truth and build us up in our faith. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll recall that chapter 60 spoke of millennial blessings for the nation of Israel. And chapter 61 and chapter 62 represented a petition from the Son to the Father, calling upon him uh, to implement his promises to Israel. Now, as we enter into chapter 63, we see a plea. A plea for the Israel of God that the God of Israel would come to their rescue. And this plea actually continues on into chapter 64. Now what we have in this chapter is really an expansion 
of that which went before. In verse 11 of the previous chapter, we read, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So here we see how this salvation is to be accomplished. As the Lord returns to avenge his people and to lead them into a season of blessing under the reign of Christ. So we want to begin tonight by looking in verses 1 through 9, where we see something of the God of Israel. And in verses 1 to 6, we see that the Lord reveals himself as a soldier who goes out to fight on Israel's behalf. The passage opens with two questions. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? And the second question, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Simply stated, these questions are asked as though it were a watchman who was asking them. And they say this, Who is this, and why are his clothes so badly stained? That's basically what they're asking. And so when you look at those questions, the first thing we should hone, on, hone in on to are the words Edom and Bosra, both of which are located in modern-day Jordan. And uh, that was in ancient times the region of Kadesh. Now, Bosra is preserved today in the World Heritage Site that we know as Petra. And so when the Lord Jesus comes, we know he's coming first to the Mount of Olives, that he'll put his feet down upon the Mount of Olives, and he'll proceed into uh, Jerusalem, he, having defeated the armies that have assembled at the Battle of Armageddon. And then he will move beyond Jerusalem into the regions around, and will ultimately con uh, in conclude his campaign and victory uh, from Edom, and uh, he there secures the territory that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we've covered this ground before. Indeed, Isaiah has spoken of it already. If you go back to chapter 34 and verse 5, chapter 34 and verse 5, here the prophet writes, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea, that's another name for Edom, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Bosra, and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. I notice that last verse and the words, the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses, because we're going to come back to that a little later in our study. But you see the same idea. He's coming to Edom. He's coming to Bosra. He's going to exact vengeance. There's going to be great bloodshed in that region. And, uh, you know, we, we tie in with this 
the, uh, the scripture of Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a great wonder, a sign in heaven, uh, which is a pictorial of the nation of Israel birthing the Christ child, and uh, Satan is enraged uh, at Israel, and uh, Antichrist at that point begins a campaign uh, of persecution against believing Jews during the tribulation period. Now, we're told in those passages in Revelation 12 and 6 and Revelation 12 and 14 that the Lord has a place prepared in the wilderness for his people during the tribulation period. And we gather that this is going to be the place that Petra is being preserved. You know, isn't it remarkable how the Lord preserves things? He's preserved the entire uh, plateau of the Temple Mount so that there can come a day when a temple can sit back on there again. And he has preserved uh, by the hand of man this amazing city that is built into the rock that was uh, Edom, that is Basra uh, or Petra as we know it, the famous rock city. So the Lord, when he comes, is heading out into that region, and he's going to deal with the enemies of Israel, and he's going to rescue those who are holed up in the city of Petra. Now, historically, Edom relished the fall of Judah. You know, from the very beginning, Edom set their face against Israel. And they have been uh, centuries-long enemies uh, of, the, of the people of God. And so they, they took advantage of Judah's weakness after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. Look what Ezekiel says of them in Ezekiel chapter 25. And remember, of course, Ezekiel himself has been taken as a captive. And he's, he's uh, reflecting back on some of the behavior here of the Edomites. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 25 and verse 12. Thus saith the Lord God, because that Edom hath dealt against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, and hath greatly offended, and revenged himself upon them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand upon Edom, and will cut off man and beast from it, and I will make it desolate from Taman. And, the, and they of Dedan shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to mine anger and according to my fury. And they shall know my vengeance, saith the Lord God. If you look in chapter 35 of Ezekiel, chapter 35 and verse 1. says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, again, that's Edom, and prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. 
Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Saith, and uh, thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passeth out it, and him that returneth. And I will fill his mountains with slain men. In thy hills, and in thy valleys, and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy cities shall not return. And you shall know that I am the Lord, because thou hast said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, and that I have heard all thy blasphemies which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given us to consume. Thus with your mouth ye have boasted against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus saith the Lord God, when the whole earth rejoiceth, I will make thee desolate, as thou didst rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do unto thee. Thou shalt be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Idumea, even all of it, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Do you get the idea that God is upset with Edom? He's got a score to settle here. You see, he is bringing an end to the sin of Judah by having the people taken off into captivity. But Edom took advantage of their calamity and went beyond and punished them even further and took advantage of their loss and looted their land and pillaged uh, their cities and indeed rejoiced in the horrors that were befalling them under the Babylonian army. So God has this issue with Edom. And actually, in, on a broader sense, Edom here is representative not just of, of the Jordanian region, but of the Arab world in general. Because if you notice, other, other parts of the Arab world were mentioned there, Dedan and other places. And so it's really a, it's really a, a diatribe, if you like, against the, uh, against the Arab world and all who embrace anti-Semitism, all who oppose the Jewish presence in the land of Israel. You mark it down. The Lord is against them. Remember what he said? They that curse you shall be cursed. And these people are dwelling under a curse. They don't understand it. They don't appreciate it. But they're under the curse of of God. And so the bloodstained garments that you read of there in Isaiah 63 are pictorial of just that. The two questions that were posed at the beginning, who is this? Well, it's the Lord. Notice, it's the one in verse 1 who describes himself as speaking in righteousness and is mighty to save. Well, only the Lord can save. So it's the Lord who is coming. Why are his clothes so stained? Because he is avenging the blood of his people in the blood of his enemies. Look with me in Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And verse 16. Verse 16 says, He gathered them together, the, the armies of the world, into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now watch what happens when chapter 19, verse 11. There they are gathered in the valley of Jezreel in Armageddon. Uh, you know, in around that, that great plain that you see looking down from Mount Carmel southward toward Megiddo. 
In verse 11, we read of the second coming of the Lord. And we read, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And notice, he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now notice, they're white and clean. You notice there's no blood on the army. Why is that? Because they're not doing any fighting. The Lord's doing the fighting. I alone, he says, I'm going to deal with this. And out of his mouth, verse 15, goeth a short, sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And as I said, he himself is going to do this. Verse 3 of Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress alone. And all the people, there was none with me. So just as the act of redemption at Calvary was a singular act, performed by the Lord Jesus Christ alone in securing our salvation, so too the act of revenge is a singular act. The accompanying army is not there to take part in the war, but to witness the one who is mighty and who has the power to save as he now exacts his judgment upon the rebellious of this world. And notice carefully now in verse 4, something that is somewhat important. It says, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now I want you to notice the order. There's a day of vengeance followed by a year of my redeemed. Now go back with me uh, to chapter 61, if you will. Chapter 61, and you remember this text that the Lord Jesus read in Luke's Gospel in the synagogue in Nazareth as he preached his first sermon in that city. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. You see the order was reversed? Now he talks about the year first, and the day second. So when he comes the first time, he comes in grace. He comes in mercy. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. He's coming offering salvation. But for those who don't receive his salvation, what happens? Well, at the end of all of that, they suffer a day of vengeance. Now, you get into Isaiah, and the order changes. Why? Because you're at the end of time, as it were, or just before the millennial kingdom, and the Lord comes, and he comes to exact vengeance upon his enemies. So it's the day of vengeance. After he takes vengeance at the battle of Armageddon, what happens? You enter into the kingdom, and it becomes the year of my redeemed. So the day refers to a specific act of vengeance. The year speaks of a sponsor 
of mercy and of grace. You and I are enjoying mercy and grace in this age, but there's coming a day of vengeance. Once that day of vengeance passes, then there is a year uh, for my redeemed. There's a time of blessing for the nation of Israel. And so that's, that's an interesting little play there in the way that the words are ordered in the scripture. So he comes in defense of the underdog, really, because Israel, at the close of time, doesn't have a friend left in the world. Look in verse 5 of Isaiah 63. He says, And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own army brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. Consequently, then the Lord judges the nations. In verse 6, I will tread down the people. The word people there is plural. I will tread down the peoples, not the people of Israel, but the peoples of the world, the nations of the world in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. So this is a reference to Israel's enemies. His vengeance is then seen as, as being poured out as a man uh, treading over a wine press as he presses down on the grapes with his feet and the, uh, the grape juice begins to run down the channel uh, to be served uh, at meal tables. That's the picture. He comes and he crushes his enemy and their blood flows freely. In fact, it's very interesting, the word blood uh, that is spoken of there in verse 3 literally means life sap. It's a reference to grape juice. The Lord says he's going to uh, be sprinkled with their blood, their life sap upon his garments. And the word Bosra is also interesting. It means grape gatherer. So there's a play here on this whole imagery of the wine press and the, uh, and the, the one who is treading upon the grapes in the preparation of that drink. So the Lord, when he comes, comes as, first of all, as a warrior prince, as a soldier enacting vengeance and righteousness upon his enemies and upon the enemies of his people. But the God of Israel isn't just a soldier. He's also a savior. Look in verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now notice verse 7. It doesn't just refer to the loving kindness of the Lord, but it's plural again. Loving kindnesses. And it's not just the praise of the Lord, but it's the praises of the Lord. And it's almost as if the language itself is incapable of expressing the fullness of God's loving kindness toward his people and of his praiseworthiness in respect to that. And so we get an idea here of the extent to which God is committing himself to this everlasting covenant. Despite the fact that Israel has sinned against him, still he bestows upon them loving kindnesses. Still he is worthy of their praises. And here too we see in these verses that we have much to be thankful for also in times of trouble. His loving kindness is rich toward us. His steadfast love, his goodness 
kindness, his mercies, his, his pity, his, how he bore them and how he bears us and, and carries us. You know, somebody said that God is the kind of father that never lets his children leave the house. <laughs> He's always carrying us. He's always bearing us up. He never leaves us to walk it alone. Now, verse 8 is interesting because it says, Surely there are my people, children, that will not lie. Is the Lord saying that the people of Israel were beyond sin? Well, clearly that would go against the whole tenor of the book, wouldn't it? I mean, this book from beginning to end has been listing and, and challenging their sinful ways. Uh, but rather than saying they would not sin, uh, what we're reading there is God's expectation of them in the light of his grace and mercies toward them. You know, the Hebrew word for lie here means far more than our understanding of that word. When we use the word lie, we simply mean an untruth. Someone has, uh, has spoken an untruth. But here, this word, it was applied to a fountain or a pit or a brook that contained no water and therefore was a disappointment to the thirsty soul. It was also used in application of a fruit tree that didn't bring forth any fruit. And of course, that should strike in your mind a particular fruit tree that the Lord Jesus encountered in Matthew's Gospel, in which he cursed because it gave the promise of fruit, uh, but in fact had no fruit upon it. And it was pictorial of the nation uh, of Israel. And so the, the Lord says, well, surely they'll not be like that fruit tree. Surely they'll not be like that fig tree. Surely, uh, having shown such mercies to them, having shown such kindness to them, having shown such pity uh, toward them, uh, having been gracious and bore them and carried them all the days of the old, of old, surely they will not lie. Surely they will not let me down. Surely they will not be a disappointment. But they were. And of course, they did let the Lord down, big time. But you know what? If you think that we're any different, we're not really. You know, you look in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're very fond of quoting Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when we preach the gospel of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And very often we stop there and we are appealing to sinners to trust Christ. But when we get to verse 10, we get a picture of God's expectation. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's what God expects of us. He expects us uh, to be walking in good works. But let's be honest, you know, that may be true of us part of the time, but it's not true of us all of the time, is it? And so we also uh, are disappointing in that respect. And just as Israel of old then had to rely upon the character of God to show mercy to them, we too must rely on our salvation upon the character of God. Now, verses 9 and 10 together of Isaiah 63 are very interesting because what you find in those verses is the Trinity working in union on behalf of Israel's salvation. Notice in verse 9 it says, In all their affliction he was afflicted. Now, he there is the Lord. In all their affliction he was afflicted. When the Edomites took it out on them, 
he felt like it was being taken out on him. And when the Babylonians dragged him away and mistreated him, he felt like he was the one dragged away and mistreated. And you see how personally the Lord takes it when people, when others afflict his people. Do you remember what the Lord said to Saul on the Damascus road? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul didn't think of himself as persecuting the Lord. He thought he was persecuting these people. But the Lord says, no, it wasn't them alone that you were persecuting, but it was me also. We think of what the book of Hebrews says, when it says that, uh, that we have such a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tried uh, or tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He, he enters into our infirmities. He enters into our afflictions. He enters into our trials. This is God the Father we're speaking of. He feels for us. Then we read that the angel of his presence saved them. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son, the angel who delivered them from Egypt. It was none other than the Lord himself, sometimes identified as the angel of the Lord. Uh, but he was close enough to his people that he felt his afflictions, his, their afflictions, even as if they were his own. He's the one who saves them, the one who loves them, the one who redeems them, the one who bears them, bears them, the one who carries them all the day long. And you know, it says here that he, he loves them. That he loves them, and the word love is very interesting because it's unique really in Isaiah insofar as it speaks of a love that delights in the companionship of its loved one. A love that delights in the companionship of his loved one. In other words, our Savior wants us to walk with him, to be his companion. He delights when we spend time with him. He delights when we come out on a Wednesday night to spend time together in his word. He delights when we're in our homes and we crack open our Bibles and we read and relish the truth of God's word. He delights when we're on our knees and we're praying to him and we're committing our way unto him. He delights in all of that. And then if you look then in verse 10, you get a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But they rebelled and fixed his Holy Spirit. Now look, you can only fix a person. It indicates here that the Holy Spirit is a person, that he has personality. You cannot fix something that is impersonal or something that is, uh, that is mere material or, or just, a, a, you know, just a, a force of some kind. You can't, you know, you and I have probably been in days whenever you were out in your car and you got a flat tire and you get out and kick the thing. Well, did the, did the car fall out with you? Did the car refuse to go and say, well, that's hurt my feelings? I've brought you all these miles and now you kick me? No, a car can't respond. Only a person could respond to something like that. And so it is with God, the Holy Spirit. He is fixed when we sin against him. That is the God of Israel. But as we move further into the text, we see something of the Israel of God. Look in verse 10 again. It says, but they rebelled and fixed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. 
Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within them? That led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them, to make The beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord causeth him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They are not called by thy name. Now we're told earlier there that God expected his children not to lie. But verse 10 begins with two words, but they. But they did. But they did rebel. And they, those words set their actions and attitudes in sharp contrast to God's hopes for them. They could have reasonably been expected to have been loyal and being obedient to the Lord, but they rebelled. So now we read of their rebellion, their retribution, their remembrance, their restitution, and their request. Notice their rebellion. They rebelled and fixed his Holy Spirit. Now understand this. All sin is rebellion against God. However else you might care to describe it. In fact, it's very rare that anybody ever refers to their sin as rebellion against God. Isn't that true? We say it was a mistake, I let myself down, whatever else. But we never hold our hand up and say, actually, it was rebellion against God. All sin is rebellion against God. And that's why we are said to be, in our natural condition, the enemies of God. All sin fixes the Spirit of God uh, as he dwells among his people. This was true in Old Testament times, and it's equally true in our day. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption, Ephesians 4 and 30. So you and I can fix the Holy Spirit, just as the Jew of old could fix the Holy Spirit. And of course, there are consequences to fixing and grieving the Spirit of God. Notice the retribution in verse 10. It says, therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. You know, there are some enemies that you're better not making, and God is one of them. Don't make God your enemy. They became the enemies of God, and they, and they uh, created an enemy in God. And uh, he's now against them. Rather than being for them, rather than working on their behalf, he's, he's working contrary to them. Uh, being no respecter of persons, he's determined to challenge and chastise their sinful ways. He's going to deal with their rebellion. Thus they found themselves facing Babylonian invasion, 
and certain captivity for 70 years. And of course, prophetically, as you push on down the timeline of history, you come to that day, yet in the future, when they will be subject to the rule of Antichrist, and where they will be suffering the hardships of the tribulation and the terrors of his rule. Again, in that day, they will have made an enemy of God. They have made an enemy of God. But then notice in verses 11 through 13, their remembrance. Then he remembered. Remembered what? Remembered whom? Moses and his people. That's Israel. Israel remembered. What did they remember? They remembered God's grace in the Exodus. You know, again, I've said to you before that many times in this book, Isaiah brings us back to the Red Sea crossing. And the same thing here. He brings us back to that momentous occasion when the Lord opens up the sea, when he puts the water in heaps. You know, the liberals tell us that they went across in a foot of water. That's how they crossed the Red Sea. They crossed at a, at a very shallow point and through a little bit of swamp land. Well, let me tell you, that's no miracle, is it? Anybody can walk through a foot of water. No, I think the Lord took them through the deepest part of that particular channel and he heaped up the water so that there were walls on either side. And he marched them through on dry land. It was a miracle. And it was a miracle of redemption. And now they're remembering it. And that reflection on their past stirred them up in their present and laid before them the prospect of their future. If God took care of them in the past, he would take care of them in the future. Which brings us to verse 14 and their restitution. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. In ancient times, flocks were oft times brought down into the, uh, into the valleys, into the lush valleys from the high pastures. Uh, and even so, the Spirit uh, brought these people and brought them to rest in Canaan land. Remember, when Joshua uh, took the land, he brought them into the land of promise where they were to rest. Look in Joshua chapter 21 for a moment. Joshua chapter 21. Notice verse 44. Now, of course, you're coming to the end of the book here. They've already crossed the Jordan. They've already fought their battles. We read in verse 44, And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them, the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hands. Now some people say, well, there you have it, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But wait a minute. This was merely a shadow of the greater rest that was to come. A rest that is secured in Christ Jesus. In fact, in Psalm 95, on that look there, God is still offering them a rest. And that's by the time of David, long after Joshua, the Lord is still holding out the offer of a rest to his people. And so we know that that rest is yet future. And this rest is entered into through Christ, and it will materialize in the kingdom age and in the eternal state, during which time Israel will suffer no further attacks and will rest in safety. So then, acknowledging God's goodness and grace upon them in the past, they call out to him in the future. Notice their request in verse 15. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. 
Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the signing of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel or Jacob acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. God's zeal for his people was seen in his mighty miracles in the past. Now get that. It was seen in the acts associated with the Exodus. There he had come to their rescue. 400 years they had been slaves in a foreign land and the Lord stepped in and took them out of Egypt and redeemed them by a mighty hand from the oppression of the Egyptians, bringing them into the land of promise. Now what they needed was that same compassion and that same mercy. They called upon God to do it again. You know, sometimes we should call upon God to do it again. You know, we look at God's mercies on our land. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a good, great prayer to pray, Lord, do it again? Do it again. Bring revival to our land again. Raise up a man again. We ought to be praying that way. He, they said, doubtless, in verse 16, thou art our father. Now here's the thing. The Jews saw God as the father of their nation. But they did not see God as their father in a personal capacity, the way you and I see God. They saw God collectively as their father, but individually they had no real relationship with him, which is what makes the Lord's Prayer so special when he teaches us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. He calls us into that personal relationship. And, and although they look back historically to the patriarchs, the Abraham and Israel or Jacob, they acknowledge that those people were dead and they were of no help to them. They said there's no point in calling out to them. They acknowledge us not. But thou, Lord, art our Father. You're alive. You can help us. You're still here. And so they relied on the fatherhood of God to them as a people. And they appealed to him. And they asked him to look down from heaven according to verse 15. Now, notice uh, they also say this with respect to their sins in verse 17. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Now, does that mean that God caused them to sin? Is that what they're saying? God, you're the one that caused us to err. You're the one that, that made it so that, that our hearts were hardened. Well, that's not it at all, because sin obviously is their responsibility. What you do is your responsibility. You have to own your own sin. But rather, God allowed them to continue in their sin and suffer its consequences. You know, I, I, I've shared this little illustration multiple times, but I think it holds really good. And every parent has been there. Every parent has been here. Jason has this to look forward to, I suspect, if he hasn't already done it. But there comes a point when you take your child into a restaurant and you're set, a meal is set down before you, and as part of the meal, they have supplied a quarter of a lemon. And every child alive ever spots that lemon and wants to eat it. And you say to them, you won't like it. It's bitter. And the child will argue with you and say, but I do like it. Even though he's never tasted it before, he's not prepared to believe your word. And so he says, I do like it. 
Now, every good person, parent at this point says, okay then, have it. <laughs> and the child bites into it, quite cocky, and after a moment or two, the little face starts to screw up, but depending on the kind of child you've got, they'll either say, I don't like it, or they'll try to persevere with it, which is even funnier. <laughs> and that's just sin nature. So the child who perseveres could say to you, well, why did you allow me to do that? Why did you let me do that? And the reason why, you need to learn a lesson. You need to learn that I'm to be believed. If I tell you something's going to hurt you, you're not going to like it, then take my word for it. It's going to hurt you, and you're not going to like it. And so it is here with the Lord. He lets them go in their sin. Why? Because they need to learn a lesson. He needed to cure them of idolatry. He needed to cure them of their rebellion. He needed to cure them of their waywardness. They needed to acknowledge that God was right all along and they were wrong all along. And so they pray, Lord, return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. No, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord had departed the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 11, I think it is, we read how the Lord leaves the courts of the temple, goes out the threshold of the Holy of Holies, turns toward the Mount of Olives, and goes down, you know, into the Kidron Valley, up the mountain, and heads back to heaven. The same route that he takes in reverse when the Lord Jesus comes again. Well, now they appeal for him to return. Now they're missing him. They didn't miss him up to this point. They weren't missing him whenever they put idols in the Holy of Holies. They weren't missing them when they were sacrificing their children to idols. They weren't missing them when they were making alliances with other nations, which they were told not to. But now as they face retribution, they say, Lord, would you come back to us? Return. And then notice verse 18, he said, they said, The people of thy holiness have possessed it, the temple, but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. How true this is. You know, when you think about it, in the history of the Temple Mount, the Gentiles have had more control over that site than the Jews. Isn't that remarkable when you think about their history? I mean, historically, they've held that site for a very short period of time. And in between times, who's been running that site? The Gentiles. Even to this day, a Jew cannot go up onto the Temple Mount and pray. Why? Because the site is given to Islam. You get up on that site and there are Muslim police who are watching and observing to make sure that no one prays a prayer or reads any holy book other than that which is offered to Allah or the Quran. Those of us who went to Israel, you remember that we went onto that site and when we were told, we were told by our guide that we could offer a prayer, but we should not bow our heads, close our eyes, or make any kind of gesture that would suggest we were praying. The preacher wasn't allowed to open his Bible. He had to preach from memory. Why? Because Islam governs that site. The Gentiles have trodden it down. The Gentiles have trodden down thy sanctuary. Thy adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. However, in verse 19, they call God to remember them as their father. Notice what they said. We are thine. Not these people. And not the Romans. Not the Babylonians. And not the Muslims. Not the British. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over 
them over those other nations. Those other nations did not have a relationship with God that was theocratic. In other words, they didn't have at any time in their history a point where God was directly ruling over them. You know, we have a wonderful nation, history as a nation, don't we? I mean, I think British history is fascinating. But at no point can we look and say, well, at that point in time, God was in control. But the Jews can say that. The Jews can say that. And so they point back to this great truth. And they say, Lord, we're special. We are thine. Unlike these other nations, they were not called by thy name. And so that being the case, can he now afford to let his people go unredeemed? Can he now allow them to be left indefinitely in bondage in Babylon forever? Can he go on leaving them in a condition where there's no distinction between them and the pagan nations that surround them? Would he really leave his temple in a state of ruin and never again claim that site? Of course not. Why? They're his people. He made promises to them. And he's going to keep those promises. In short, they belong to God by virtue of their creation, their election, and their redemption. He ruled over them in the past, and he will rule over them yet again in the future. And he has never treated Gentile nations in the same way that Israel is treated. Only they are called by his name. That is their eternal hope. And that's why we say they have a great future ahead as a nation. But what does any of this say to us? Well, I think there's a number of practical lessons for you and I tonight. First of all, we're reminded that our God shares in our sufferings. That's really important, isn't it? That when we're afflicted, he's afflicted. When we're hurting, he's hurting. He feels for us. He's not distant and aloof, but he feels our pain. And we're reminded also that it is by his grace that we are blessed of him, that he is our Savior. And as such, his loving kindnesses, his mercies, his goodness, his love, his pity, his sustaining power, his bearing us up are all, benefic uh, all, uh, all benefits of his grace. And thirdly, we do well to remember our own exodus. The day we got saved. When he called us out of darkness into light. That was our moment, wasn't it? And when you look back at that, and you remember how the Lord dealt with you there, well then you realize that having had such a gracious dealing with him in the past, we can expect nothing but gracious dealings with him in the future. And finally, not only is God our Father, but his name his reputation is inseparably tied to us. He has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us, and neither he will. Well, we'll leave it there for this evening and pick up, Lord willing, next Tuesday evening in chapter 64.